Good morning. It's good to be back. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to you asking for your Holy Spirit's help in interpreting a passage which is kind of perplexing. We know, dear Lord, that your word is trustworthy. And we ask that whatever cultural scrim or place we come from can be relieved so we can see what it is that you have for us this day. And I pray most earnestly that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be acceptable to you. For you are our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. This passage really is challenging, and I almost threw it out and decided we don't need to preach on it, but I think it's kind of necessary. And I've become aware of the fact that it's not really the passage that's hard to understand, but we bring to Scripture things that have to do with our own context that make things difficult. We have known, and you have heard time and time again, that Jesus Christ's ministry turned the world that he knew and continues to turn the world that we know upside down and inside out. That's what he does. That's what he did. But now I'm thinking that that idea and image does not extend far enough. When we talk about turning what we know about reality upside down, we are still dealing with the limitations of what we actually know. How it is that we understand. How we think life operates. Well, being in Kenya for five weeks, I really, really came to grips with some of the cultural issues. You know, I went there understanding that in the United States, the vibrancy of Christianity is not the same as it is in sub-Saharan Africa. And we all know if we read anything that the mainline church is really in trouble. But I'm not going to stand up here and say that Americans alone mangle Christianity. We're no worse than anyone else. There is something about the power of the Holy Spirit that is allowed to flourish at certain times and places, and we need to grab hold of it. And it has to do with serving the one we love, who is Jesus Christ. As you've been listening about the partnership for the past 11 years, I hope that you've come to understand that the mission part of it is very, very crucial. But what this is at its core is a spiritual relationship. And it is about evangelism in the purest, realest sense. We want what they've got. The depth of the faith. The vibrancy of worship. The visceral presence of the Holy Spirit. Salvation. I want that for us. And have been opening for them, evangelizing us. I wanted to go to Kenya then to have a greater access of God reality away from the familiar and this beloved, beloved community. And discovered in this passage that key portions of today's passage, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. This verse has become very, very real, even though I haven't even verbalized it to myself as I have made this journey to understand how my personal views of Christ have been determined by and intertwined with secularism of the Western world, a love for culture over God. That's 
the other got, a love for what we've got. And boy, did I ever learn that I loved it. But the Kenyans don't hold all the answers. It would be really a mistake for you to think that. Their culture has elements that seem to distort the message of Christ. We don't even and can't even know how much we love what is understandable to us, what is familiar to us, what is God to us. One of the things that I have to deal with in going to Kenya, and I'm almost embarrassed in telling you how badly this affected me, is the fact that in, the, in Kenya where they grow arguably the best coffee on the globe, I can't get any coffee. And this is an addiction, and this is a problem. And so they drag out this jar of coffee that they've had for about 11 years of crystallized Nescafe, and that's what I get for coffee. And the degree to which I love that is really, really sad. <laughs> One day, I brought out my stash of what you get from Starbucks, little tubes of the newest instant coffee that's much better than the stuff from the old days. And one of the Kenyans wanted to try it, and they emptied out my whole stash in one sitting. Those are the things that become so real, so familiar, so necessary in our lives. What I've discovered in this passage is that there is a cultural barrier to just about everything, and that cultural barrier somehow has to do with serving another master. The slave manager managed money and property for his master. And he, called, he was called a rascal by a lot of people, but he was worse than that. He was a sleazy guy. He misused his master's money and proceeded to buy friends by making deals with them with his master's money. And then he was not punished, but commended by his master for being so clever. He was validated for his worldly cleverness. And people of the world, scripture said, this is what is said in this passage, people of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And the people of the light, the disciples of Christ. And it's downright confusing unless we look at it from the perspective of being in the light and being people of life and light. And then we discover we cannot serve two masters. The idolatry has to do with money, but money, as we know, is a symbol of a greater problem. We have an idolatry with secularism. One of the most gracious, light-filled statements that we can ever make is if you want to live life and have it make sense, then you must love God first. If you want life to fall into place and possess a divine rhythm and truly love the people that God has given you to love, then you must love God first and foremost. That's spiritual. That's not cultural. And we got to know the difference, especially when considering what this other verse that jumped out at me had to say, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. In serving God as our master, 
we do more than turn our values upside down and our way of being inside out. We come to him with these words. I don't know. I am at the end of my own understanding. Nothing shakes up heaven and earth more than that prayer coming from our gut. In that prayer, we are acknowledging that we are not God. We are acknowledging that our mind has a finite amount of information. There is something so holy about this particular prayer. It is so much in contrast to our culture to come to God and say, I am at the end of my own understanding. Show me what it means to have no other master before you. That is our prayer. And have mercy on me, precious Lord, when I serve other masters. I don't know. Help me. Show me. There is no time in our journey with God, with Christ, that that prayer is inappropriate. In fact, it's a prayer of maturity. It's not a prayer that we outgrow. And this is the biggest move in overriding, transcending cultural belief I know because our culture tells us you need to know and you need to be on top of it and you need to be spiritually advanced and you need to not make any mistakes. In other words, you need to be perfect. When we get to not know, we in the Christian tradition are not Gnostics. That heresy was dealt with in the early church. That heresy claimed divine secrets and special knowledge and more advanced spiritual beings. We do not get to claim Christ because we have it all together. Because we are good like the Pharisees believed that they were good. We claim him because we're not that good. We have our dark sides. We do, in the words of Paul, the very thing we do not want to do. We make a decision to be a certain way, and almost instantaneously, sometimes, something else happens. And we take pride in believing we are better than someone else, and that's the Pharisees as well. We think, judge, categorize, and compare. That's secular. I don't think babies do that naturally. Or toddlers. I think that that is something learned to categorize, rate, make judgments. Is this not what God finds despicable? I spent hours and hours journaling, not because I'm such a spiritually advanced person, but because I needed to. And you know what was revealed? In our humanness, we believed we do believe that God just might find us despicable. And it's not like that. Hear the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like that. That's what the world does. If we are wondering at all about who we are before God, then the door to grace has already been opened. If you and I are capable of wondering, are capable of spiritually confessing, we discover the unconditional love and forgiveness of the living God. 
unconditional love and forgiveness. And what could be more at odds with the world, with other than the secular, than this? So in coming back from Kenya, from the sabbatical, I kind of made a decision. I've got to serve God and I've got to love God more than I love my church. And people, pastors, love their churches more than God. And let me tell you something. This church is very, very lovable. But it's really, really hard to love you completely unless I love God first. And it's the same exact feeling you have with your families. This feeling that somehow if I love God most, that, some, that they will get less love? There is something, some spiritual mechanism that releases so we're able to love in ways we never had the capacity to love when God is the first one we love. It expands our capacity to love others when God is the first one we love. When I first arrived in Kenya, still not only in my cultural grid, but in love with my cultural grid, I viewed the world around me and I saw rural Kenya, which is red dust and shabbiness and brokenness and dis disrepair and rust and peeling paint. And I didn't even realize that that's not a loving position because that is certainly a judgment call. And I had in my mind, this is so run down as opposed to our superior way of being in my head. And then I saw a sign. And I have to tell you, the Kenyan signage is amazing. They name their stores and things, things you wouldn't believe. And this one was a sign that said, God's Glory Market. And the market was shabby. And the floor was dirt and rickety. And you couldn't tell what was being sold. And the sign itself was battered. And I felt anger. How could they call this God's glory? How could they call poverty, disrepair, and eyesore God's glory? Don't they know what God's glory is? This seems almost sacrilegious. And five weeks later, I drove by the same shop and had a completely different reaction. This has to do with the overwhelming, transforming power of the love of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. I had a completely different reaction. What had happened? Because now the name of the store made sense to me. I had had enough of my own cultural bias knocked out of me and had a better understanding of everything, including Christ. And in trying to detach from the particular cultural way of being to the living Christ who transcends it all, I began to see some things. And what I observed was Juliet, my hostess, now who owned a store just around the corner instead of in another village, one day came back and said, I was at the counter today, but I sold nothing because people came in who needed to pray, who needed healing, who needed counsel. And I thought she was doing that in that store for the glory of God. The original store that I saw, I was looking at what is commercially attractive, what would draw people in, a good-looking store. And what was happening in that store was probably prayer. Forgive me, Lord. 
the glory of God. I was thinking of God's glory in terms of appearance and what was commercially appealing. But the God who transcends it all, when our culture comes together, does something explosive. And this is my closing thought. When two cultures come together in the power of Christ, in the name of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, in order that both will serve him better, that's the goal, so both will serve Christ better, more effectively, the great clouds of the culture come together and merge, and there is that part of us when coming together by the power of the Holy Spirit that really is the Holy Spirit, and without a cultural identity but a love identity where we can speak each other's language and be understood, it's amazing how when we talk about the things of Christ, we understand each other. It happens where the two great clouds overlap with the lordship of Christ and loving the master. And in that intersection, we know that we must love God more, that he must be our intention and our effort, because in that love we are seeing something, resources being released in our spirits and in the world that we had no access to before. But it's in that overlap. And we have our big cultures, and there's something that happens when it comes together for the benefit of everybody. So it hit home when I finally arrived home and got to Reagan National Airport and went through customs. And there, over the wall, said, Welcome to the United States of America. And I burst into tears. And I thought, oh, I love this country. But the love felt different because it is the expand of love that comes only when God is the first love. You want to know patriotism? Love God more. You want to love your family? Love God more. Let us pray. So it takes a great deal of, of trust, precious Lord. And it feels like slight betrayal to all of these people that we love to say, we're going to love you more, but it is the only way. So we ask that you gently work with us, lead us, work in our hearts and our beings to do what it is that we must do, and that is to put our trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.